This is a recording of Moses One and the Apocalypse of Abraham, Twin Sons of Different Mothers, by Jeffrey M. Bradshaw, David J. Larson, and Stephen T. Whitlock, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, read by Victor Worth. Abstract. This article highlights the striking resemblances between Moses One and a corresponding account from the Apocalypse of Abraham, one of the earliest and most important Jewish texts describing heavenly ascent. Careful comparative analysis demonstrates a sustained sequence of detailed affinities in narrative structure that go beyond what Joseph Smith could have created out of whole cloth from his environment and his imagination. The article also highlights important implications for the study of the Book of Moses as a temple text. Previous studies have suggested that the story of Enoch found in the Pearl of Great Price might be understood as the culminating episode of a temple text woven throughout chapters 2-8 through eight of the Book of Moses. The current article is a conceptual bookend to these earlier studies, demonstrating that the account of heavenly ascent in Moses 1 provides a compelling prelude to a narrative outlining laws and liturgy akin to what could have been used anciently as part of ritual ascent within earthly temples. In this article, we describe significant resemblances in narrative structure between the story of heavenly ascent given in Moses 1 and an ancient text of Jewish origin called the Apocalypse of Abraham. As both, quote, the earliest mystical writing of Judeo-Christian civilization, close quote, and a foundational text for Islamic scripture, Apocalypse of Abraham plays a prominent, and in some respects unique, role in its genre. Notably, Apocalypse of Abraham is, quote, the only Jewish text to discuss foreordination, Satan's rebellion, and premortal existence, close quote. Adding inestimably to the value of the text itself is the singular series of six beautiful color illustrations within the Codex Sylvester, quote, the oldest and the only independent manuscript containing the full text of Apocalypse of Abraham, close quote. Photographs of the original illustrations are published here for the first time. Besides their intrinsic merit as works of ancient religious art, these illustrations shed light on how medieval Christians in the East understood the older Jewish text in their day. Because studies comparing ancient manuscripts with modern scripture are bound to be controversial, we will begin with a somewhat lengthy section addressing questions about our purpose and methodology. Why did we undertake this study in the first place, and how will we carry it out? Section 1. Following this prologue, we will provide a brief overview of the genre of heavenly ascent, from which both Apocalypse of Abraham and Moses 1 are drawn. We will describe how accounts of heavenly ascent are different from, but related to, the experience of ritual ascent, as experienced in temples. Section 2. Then we will show that each major element, and nearly all of the secondary elements, of the two-part narrative structure of heavenly ascent in Moses 1 is mirrored in Apocalypse of Abraham, and importantly, almost always in the same sequence, section 3. Finally, we will close this article by addressing the significance of the witness of ancient manuscripts, such as Apocalypse of Abraham, for the book of Moses as a whole, section 4. 1. Purpose and Methodology In this section, we will address three questions. What can we learn by comparing ancient texts with modern scripture? Why should it matter whether the accounts in modern scripture have a basis in history? 
can comparative research be conducted in a methodologically sound manner? What can we learn by comparing ancient texts with modern scripture? How does this study differ from other comparative approaches? There are a variety of comparative approaches that can be used to understand the texts and translations of modern scripture. For example, in the present study, our primary interest is in comparing Moses 1 with ancient resources unknown to Joseph Smith, in support of arguments that the prophet translated through a process dependent on divine revelation. On the other hand, some comparative studies seek to identify instances where Joseph Smith might have drawn on the Bible and other resources known to him as aids in the translation of LDS scripture. Yet other studies analyze intertextuality between the Bible and modern scripture with the goal of recognizing and understanding the interplay of these texts, while generally setting aside questions about the translation process. It is evident that these different realms of comparative study should not be pursued in isolation. Rather, it seems important that those of us who happen to have a predilection by disposition or training for ancient studies, history, or literary methods actively immerse ourselves in ongoing research in those fields that are not as natural to us, allowing us to carefully weigh and incorporate the respective contributions of each line of inquiry as we jointly try to form a more comprehensive picture of modern scripture and how it came to be. Such a stance requires resisting the temptation to take the narrower and easier path that is bounded by personal inclination or professional discipline because of what J.J.M. Roberts, an eminent scholar of ancient studies, called, quote, a loss of nerve, a decision to settle for a more comfortable, albeit more restricted, vision, close quote. We agree with Roberts that, quote, scholars must continue to be conversant with fields outside their own discipline. To some extent, one must depend on experts in these related fields, but unless one has some first-hand acquaintance with the texts and physical remains with which these fields deal, one will hardly be able to choose which expert's judgment to follow. There is no substitute for knowledge of the primary sources. Indeed, as Roberts argues, the demanding requirements of broad scholarship prompted some more narrowly focused biblical scholars to retreat from comparative research just as it began to fully bloom. Subsequent analysis of this retreat revealed that, quote, many of the biblical authors involved no longer controlled the primary sources for the extra-biblical evidence. This lack of first-hand acquaintance with the non-biblical material is a growing problem in the field. It is partly a reflex of the growing complexity of the broader field of ancient Near Eastern studies. No one can master the whole field any longer. Close quote. Of course, the challenge of mastering the required fields to undertake competent comparative research is in some respects even more daunting for students of Latter-day Saint scripture than it is for biblical studies. Scholars of modern scripture aspiring to comparative study need to not only master the Bible and relevant texts and contexts from the ancient world, but ideally also must be fully conversant with Latter-day Saint scripture and doctrine, as well as primary sources relating to the 19th century history of the church and its wider setting. Moreover, they must wrestle with the fact that modern scripture is only available in English translation, making direct comparisons to the languages of ancient texts impossible. To the degree we lack familiarity with each of these allied fields, there are important matters to which we will remain blind. 
For example, to the extent we have failed to master 19th century church history and sources, we will not discover connections and influences among events proximal to the translation process. Likewise, without expertise in writings and backgrounds of the ancient world, we will miss significant distal evidence of revealed history and truth that has been restored in modern scripture. No less important, if we have never learned to read, analyze, and compare the literary features of texts in a careful manner, we will remain blithely ignorant of significant details that sometimes provide unique clues to understanding. Despite our immediate focus on comparing Moses 1 to ancient texts, we hope it will be apparent to readers that the present study has benefited from the valuable work of historians and literary specialists. For example, our study of the history of translation process has led us to believe that Joseph Smith was not entirely bound to a character-by-character, word-by-word reproduction of source texts in his translations. He understood that the primary intent of modern revelation is to give divine guidance to Latter-day readers, not to provide precise matches to texts from other times. We also have come to see his involvement in the production of Scripture as an exhausting personal effort that is better described in terms of active, immersive spiritual engagement than as passive reception and recital. Most importantly, as we seek to contribute to a comprehensive picture of the translation process, we have come to consider significant patterns of resemblance to ancient manuscripts that the prophet could not have known, and of unexpected conformance to conditions imposed by an archaic setting, as potential indicators of antiquity that are best explained when the essential element of divine revelation is acknowledged. Why should Moses I be compared with the work of Pseudepigrapha? While we take the book of Moses to be a work of scripture informed by authentic history, Apocalypse of Abraham, our primary comparative text, is universally classed as a work of pseudepigrapha. The term pseudepigrapha, which goes back to the second century, literally means with false superscription. In modern times, it refers to Jewish or Christian writings generally composed between 200 BCE and 200 CE that are typically attributed to prominent Old Testament figures, but that almost certainly did not originate with them. For example, the text of Apocalypse of Abraham, as we have it today, though written in the first person as if Abraham were the author, was not composed by Abraham himself. However, most scholars would acknowledge the possibility that there are ideas, themes, and stories in the account whose origins predate 200 BCE. Some scholars, having concluded from their study that Joseph Smith created modern scripture from a combination of textual borrowings and his own imagination, apply the term pseudepigrapha, as well as the gentler term midrash, to the book of Abraham and the book of Moses. Thus, after studying a previous essay comparing the book of Moses with pseudepigraphal texts, one reader asks, quote, Just to make sure I understand this correctly, the evidence of the book of Moses not being pseudepigrapha is that it is very similar to pseudepigrapha. Close quote. To answer this question properly, it needs to be restated. Should it count as evidence that Joseph Smith did not simply invent the book of Moses if we find that it resembles documents that are thought to have been invented, but that are also known to be ancient? The answer to this question is, we think, a qualified yes. Of course, the only possible gold standard for a comparative study of Moses one would be a similar account of heavenly ascent known to have come directly from the hand of Moses himself. However, because we possess no such manuscript, we are obliged to make the most of what we have. Either we engage with the imperfect collection of extant comparative cohorts as best we can, or we do nothing at all. 
can imperfect documents provide reliable evidence? In light of our cultural and conceptual distance from the milieu of Moses, we are fortunate that imperfect documents from antiquity may nevertheless provide keys for understanding that mysterious other world, even when existing manuscripts were written much later and, not infrequently, have come to us in a form that is riddled with the ridiculous. C.S. Lewis once addressed the potential of ancient sources, even those of poor quality, to inform modern scholars in surprising ways. He illustrated his point by saying, quote, I would give a great deal to hear any ancient Athenian, even a stupid one, talking about Greek tragedy. He would know in his bones so much that we seek in vain. At any moment, some chance phrase might, unknown to him, show us where modern scholarship had been on the wrong track for years, close quote. In a few instances, our experiences in comparing Moses 1 to Apocalypse of Abraham have revealed the truth of Lewis's claim. For example, as we looked carefully at Moses 1.27, a seemingly gratuitous and initially inexplicable phrase stood out, as the voice was still speaking. Surprisingly, we found that Apocalypse of Abraham repeated similar phrases in analogous contexts. This discovery provided a welcome clue to a possible meaning of this enigmatic phrase in both Moses 1 and Apocalypse of Abraham, a finding we will describe in more detail below. What kinds of claims can and cannot be made as a result of this study? Of course, in using Apocalypse of Abraham as the primary basis of comparison, we make no claim that its story of heavenly ascent has come to us in a pristine state, nor that the text must derive from an experience going back to Abraham himself. Neither would we feel obliged to affirm that the description of the heavenly ascent described in Moses 1 is a verbatim transcript of an ancient document originally authored in toto by Moses himself. Indeed, the chapter itself gives us reason to doubt that this is so. What is of interest, however, is that the major elements of the two separate accounts of heavenly ascent seem to draw on a common well of ritual and experience in a matter that belies the apparent fact that they were independently produced in time frames that are separated by millennia. Why should it matter whether the accounts in modern scripture have a basis in history? In what way has skepticism about the historicity of scripture created resistance to comparative studies? Some scholars have come to the conclusion that there is little of genuine value that can be gleaned by comparing modern scripture to writings from antiquity. In part, this is because comparative studies sometimes have been conducted carelessly. See more on this below. However, a more important reason for the reluctance of some to embrace the comparative method is that they may see little or nothing of historical value in either the scriptural productions of Joseph Smith or in ancient traditions preserved inside and outside the Bible. If both the Moses of modern scripture and the Moses of ancient Near East tradition are largely, if not exclusively, literary rather than historical figures, why would a detailed comparison of their stories reveal anything real about the material past? Old Testament scholar John Walton has summarized this aspect of the reasoning behind the tendency to devalue comparative research in the biblical context. Quote, Resistance to comparative studies continues in some critical circles, especially those more focused on the biblical text simply as the literary output of an ancient culture. One result of this approach to the text is the conviction that there are no real historical events behind the text to reconstruct. The current form of the text is viewed as the result of a long history of redactional activity that does not represent any specific time period or series of events. 
Historical criticism is therefore seen as fruitless, and literary criticism is in no need of comparative enlightenment. Close quote. Why is the historical basis of modern scripture important to Latter-day Saints? While imperfections in the Bible will not greatly disturb or surprise most Latter-day Saints, they believe that the principal events and characters described in modern scripture have a basis in history and revelation is of great consequence to their faith. How so? First, Joseph Smith claimed to have met and conversed with many of these characters, including Moses. Second, many ancient figures mentioned in modern scripture are presented at face value as historical characters in historical settings. Finally, and most importantly, some of these individuals are recorded as having personally transmitted priesthood authority and keys to Joseph Smith. For these reasons, those who believe that Joseph Smith met, conversed with, wrote about, spoke about, and was given authority by divinely sent personages who formerly lived on earth, also embrace by implication the idea that authentic history sits behind the record of the prophet's visions, teachings, translations, and revelations. Can comparative research be conducted in a methodologically sound manner? Why has the popularity of comparative research varied over time? Recent decades have seen a decline in interest in comparative studies among Latter-day Saints. In part, this is due to the recognition that such research has not always been conducted with adequate attention to needed methodological controls. Such carelessness may lead to unreasonable or excessive claims. The up-and-down trajectory and comparative study of Latter-day Saint scripture is somewhat analogous to the initial waxing and later waning of comparative research in biblical studies, as described by J.J.M. Roberts. Quote, The tendency has been to overstress the importance of the background material in the first flush of discovery, and then, when the flaws in the early interpretations have become obvious, to swing to the other extreme of largely ignoring the comparative material. Close quote. How can common pitfalls in comparative research be avoided? To remedy flaws common in comparative analysis, several scholars have offered useful compendia of the pitfalls of the comparative approach, along with helpful guidelines. Those studies that compare English translations of modern scripture to texts in ancient languages do not lend themselves to every technique employed in formal vocabulary studies. Several types of controls can still be applied. As a starting point, when comparing Moses 1 and Apocalypse of Abraham, we have tried to address the following questions. Could common factors in the environments of the authors of the accounts being compared account for their similarities? We have not yet encountered significant specific resemblances to Moses 1 as a whole in the writings of the biblical commentators and visionaries of Joseph Smith's time. Nor have we found evidence that the prophet had access to relevant ancient accounts from which he could have borrowed significantly, other than the Bible itself. With respect to the Bible, a common explanation for Joseph Smith's account of Moses' heavenly ascent is that it was inspired by the story of Jesus' encounter with Satan in Matthew 4. However, as it turns out, Matthew's account is a relatively unfruitful source of comparison. Although Moses 1 and Matthew 4 share some general elements of one particular type scene tradition, out of which both texts may have grown, the specific resemblances are weak and limited to a small fraction of the Moses 1 narrative. Are the resemblances densely or sparsely distributed? Shotgun approaches, where the text of primary interest is analyzed in relation to a much larger comparative text, almost inevitably pick up similarities in wording scattered sparsely throughout the longer text.
To minimize this problem in the present study, we have limited the primary thrust of our comparison to two relatively short documents, our target interest, Moses 1, and a cohort of reasonably comparable length, the heavenly ascent chapters of Apocalypse of Abraham. Are the accounts similar in genre and setting? When commonality in genre and setting at the general level, similar in spirit to what Nicholas Frederick called, quote, shared context, undergirds the accounts being compared, it strengthens the argument for additional, more specific resemblances. In the case of the heavenly ascents of Moses I and Apocalypse of Abraham, the genres and settings of the two texts are highly similar. How much of the entire narrative is spanned by the resemblances? How strong are the resemblances? When comparing two accounts, it is important to avoid the tendency to highlight only a few points of narrative overlap with the primary text of interest. The results of comparative studies are most convincing when strong evidence of common themes and narrative elements can be found across a large proportion of the text of primary interest. To what extent do similar elements follow the same sequence? In the present study, we do not merely consider the number of overlaps in narrative structure, but also commonalities in their sequence. A high correlation in the sequence of major narrative elements of the text of primary interest and its comparative cohort is a powerful form of evidence. To what extent are both similarities and differences discussed? Some studies rely on cherry-picking, selecting only a small fraction of the most convincing similarities for comparison with the text of primary interest, while ignoring or downplaying contradictory indications. In our study, we try to identify not only commonalities in narrative elements, but also some of the more important differences in perspective within those elements. For example, although the heavenly ascents of Moses I and Apocalypse of Abraham are similar in that they culminate in the presence of God, we highlight and attempt to account for the fact that Moses sees God face to face, whereas Apocalypse of Abraham insists that Abraham will not and presumably cannot see him. We also employ Frederick's criterion of dissimilarity making note of significant instances where Moses I and Apocalypse of Abraham uniquely share an unusual description or event that is neither found in the Bible nor elsewhere in relevant pseudepigrapha. While it has not been possible to apply every recommendation in the literature to our study in rigorous fashion, we have tried to be sensitive to the pertinent issues. In some cases, we have had to adapt standard practice to deal with specific challenges to our two texts. For example, we have tried to avoid placing too much stress on the specific wording of resemblances in Moses 1 and Apocalypse of Abraham, especially because in both cases we are dealing with English translations rather than ancient originals. Instead, we usually focus on resemblances in themes and sequencing of narrative elements, especially where the presence and ordering of such elements are recognized by relevant scholarship as belonging to the genre. Summary and Conclusions In concluding this section, we cite the perspective of John Walton, who shares our optimistic view of the value of comparative study and the possibility of respectful collaboration with scholars of all persuasions. A comparative study of the kind he advocates, quote, does not attempt to negate the concept of sources or the ideas of long periods of composition. It merely indicates, in some cases, that comparative study is capable of offering some correctives to some of the assumptions and conclusions of source theory. Despite some pockets of resistance, critical scholarship as a whole has tended to absorb the data provided by comparative studies and adjust its theories accordingly, 
Comparative study poses a threat not to critical scholarship, but only to occasional theories that critical scholars have espoused. Close quote. We also agree with the balanced assessment of J.J.M. Roberts about the value of comparative analysis. He notes that although it, quote, has never proven a particular interpretation, it has certainly ruled out some and suggested others, close quote. In addition, we are persuaded that the process of careful comparison can increase understanding and appreciation of otherwise obscure details that appear in both modern scripture and ancient texts. Of course, we do not think it advisable or even possible to, quote, find the key to every scriptural phenomenon in some ancient Near Eastern precedent, close quote. However, we think that in the case of Moses I, it is appropriate to put the claim of ancient affinities in modern scripture to the test of scholarship by, quote, silhouetting the scriptural text against its wider literary and cultural environment, close quote, in antiquity. And importantly, in doing so, quote, we must not succumb either to parallelomania or to parallelophobia, close quote. Section 2. Moses I as an account of heavenly ascent. Both the overall narrative structure and specific details within Moses I place it squarely in the genre of the ancient heavenly ascent literature. Temple-going Latter-day Saints who read accounts of heavenly ascent will quickly discover that the structure and symbols found in such accounts are strongly related to the theology and rites of the temple. However, while stories of heavenly ascent bear important similarities to ancient and modern temple worship, they make the claim of being something more. Whereas temple rituals dramatically depict a figurative journey into the presence of God, the heavenly ascent literature contains stories of exceptional individuals who experienced actual encounters with deity within the heavenly temple. The, quote, completion or fulfillment, close quote, of the types and images found in earthly ordinances. In such encounters, individuals may experience a vision of eternity, participate in worship and song with the angels, and have certain blessings conferred upon them that are made sure by the voice of God himself. They may also acquire membership and a mission as a member of the divine council, as is outlined with specific reference to Moses 1 in Stephen Osmoot's helpful exploration of this topic. In a 2014 BYU Studies quarterly publication, it was suggested that the law of consecration lived by Enoch's people and the record of their resulting heavenly ascent in Moses 6-7 through might be understood as the culminating episode of a temple text woven throughout chapters 2-8 through of the book of Moses. The present article should be seen as a conceptual bookend to that piece, demonstrating that the account of heavenly ascent in Moses 1 provides a compelling prelude to the temple text in Moses 2 through 8. In the present study, we will show that certain aspects of the same general pattern in the book of Moses, namely heavenly ascent followed by a vision of the creation and the fall, holds in Apocalypse of Abraham and elsewhere in selected Jewish, Christian, and Islamic tradition. Section 3. Comparison of Moses 1 with the Apocalypse of Abraham The Apocalypse of Abraham is thought to be Jewish in origin, though it has been preserved by Christian hands. Contrary to early assessments that saw Apocalypse of Abraham as a work that would have appealed mainly to fringe groups with mystical interests, recent scholarship embraces the conclusion that when it was first composed, the teachings of Apocalypse of Abraham reflected views held in large measure by mainstream Judaism. Though probably written in the first century CE, the work was not, quote, introduced to Western readers, close quote, until 1897, through the German translation of Bonwetsch. 
It is noteworthy that the first translation of an English edition of Apocalypse of Abraham, based on Bonwetch's German translation, was made by Latter-day Saint Richard T. Hogg and published in the Church's Improvement Era magazine in 1898. Building on the earlier work of Hugh Nibley, Jared Ludlow, and Thomas Clark, Bradshaw and Larson previously identified Apocalypse of Abraham as a promising candidate for detailed comparison with Moses I. The present article significantly extends and updates their preliminary study. This article focuses on the middle chapters of Apocalypse of Abraham, 9 through 23, that describe Abraham's heavenly ascent. An earlier section of Apocalypse of Abraham relates the dispute with his idol-worshipping father, chapters 1 through 8, and a later portion of the text contains a detailed theological discussion between Abraham and the Lord, chapters 24 through 31. Overview of Resemblances in Narrative Structure Accounts of heavenly ascent and temple ritual are not uncommonly structured into two main parts, a down road followed by an up road. Consistent with this pattern, Moses I takes the prophet from a vision of his first home in the spirit world, then downward to the telestial world of the mortal earth, and finally upward in a step-by-step return to God. Moses' experience culminates within the heavenly temple, where he is shown a vision of the creation, the fall, and the essential role of the atonement, as described in Moses chapters 2 through 5. Notably, the grand vision of Enoch in Moses 6 through 7 contains some of the same elements as Moses 1, with some variation in sequence and emphasis. In the overview diagram in figure 2, thematic resemblances of the heavenly ascent chapters of Apocalypse of Abraham to the narrative themes of Moses 1 have been roughly classified according to the section of the Moses 1 account in which they appear. The frequency of resemblances of Apocalypse of Abraham to Moses 1 in a given section is represented by a number. The slash and second number that appear next to the first two sections refer to a few of the significant resemblances of Apocalypse of Abraham to the Book of Abraham in the early part of the account. Although our text of primary interest is Moses 1, we felt that these particular affinities of Apocalypse of Abraham to another of Joseph Smith's translations were of such importance and relevance that they should not be ignored. By the term thematic resemblances, we mean instances where reasonably similar topics of discussion occur in both texts, even when perspectives on that topic may differ. The criterion of thematic similarity rather than identical vocabulary is appropriate because we are comparing two English translations. The summary of resemblances shown in Figure 2 paints an interesting picture. It is evident that the resemblances are not confined to limited sections of Moses 1, but rather are spread throughout the chapter. The resemblances themselves are highly varied and tend to be unique within a given section of the narrative. Importantly, not only the occurrence, but also the sequence of common elements of the two texts is similar, satisfying a stronger comparative criterion that resemblances should form part of, quote, a highly intricate pattern rather than the simple matching of an isolated motif, close quote. There's only one important exception to this consonance and narrative order. Moses' vision of premortal spirits occurs near the beginning of his vision, whereas Abraham receives a similar view near the end of his vision. This anomaly is discussed in more detail later on. Value of the accompanying illustrations. Over and beyond the value of the account itself, the beautiful accompanying illustrations in the Codex Sylvester manuscript of Apocalypse of Abraham 
add to our understanding. The illustrations shed light on how medieval Christians in the East understood the text. In at least one case, it is clear that these Christians interpreted these stories differently than the first or second century redactor. In addition to their appearance in the 14th century manuscript, the illustrations are included in a facsimile edition first published in 1891, though a reproduction of one of the facsimile images was used previously in an article by Hunibli, so far as we have been able to learn, the full set of six illustrations from the facsimile edition had not been in print for more than a century when we photographed them in 2009. Moreover, the photographs of the corresponding pages in the original manuscript are published for the first time in this article. While the facsimile versions reveal some things that might otherwise be obscure, the photographs of the original manuscript are better witnesses of the care and artistry with which the miniatures were executed, particularly with respect to facial features and other minute details. As would be expected in an account of heavenly ascent, the illustrations depict ordinances, such as sacrifice, along with various symbols associated with the temple and its priesthood. In figure 3, Abraham appears with a group of sacrificial animals. The figure at right is Yahoel, an angel bearing the name of deity, who will accompany Abraham in his heavenly journey. His body, face, and hair are also meant to signal to the reader that his presence is akin to that of God himself. The turban, blue robe, and golden staff recall a royal high priestly figure. Although Yahoel is depicted in figure 3 in human form, the text of Apocalypse of Abraham describes him as a composite being, both man and bird. While his anthropomorphic aspects feature high priestly imagery, his teromorphic aspects are those of a griffin, a mythical creature that combines the form and powers of a falcon and a lion. Other angelic beings in Apocalypse of Abraham are also described as birds, including the Satan-like Azazel, specifically referred to as an impure bird. Despite scattered references to griffin-like angels who provide transport to heaven for visionaries that appear in Jewish mystical texts and medieval legends, Andrei Orlov finds the bird-like imagery in Apocalypse of Abraham, quote-unquote, puzzling especially in light of the fact that, quote, the primary angels in the apocalyptic and Merkaba materials are usually depicted as anthropomorphic creatures, close quote. He can account for the bird-like features of the angels in Apocalypse of Abraham only in the general tendency of the text to avoid attributing human likeness to God to heavenly beings. Of possible relevance, however, is Hugh Nibley's reminder that both Apocalypse of Abraham and the Testament of Abraham, quote, are full of Egyptian matter, close quote. For instance, the god Horus, the son and successor of the great god Osiris, was typically represented as a falcon, or as a human-like creature with a falcon head. Horus, quote, could also appear as a griffin, close quote, suggesting an analog to the betrayal of Yahoel as part griffin. One also recalls the appearance of an Azazel-like character who opposes Horus in Nibley's reading of DeBuck's interpretation of Egyptian ritual texts as a ritual drama. Nibley describes the drama in detail as depicting a, quote, false Horus, depicted as a hyperbolic braggart who attempts to deceive Osiris by taking the form of a bird, falsely purporting to be the very form of Horus in order to usurp the role of the true Horus.
In addition to the general resemblances in the character and griffin-like appearance of Horus, his role in conducting the dead, quote, into the presence of Osiris, close quote, is not inconsistent generally with the role of Yahoel in bringing Abraham into the presence of God. One might also point to accounts where Horus and Yahoel are both associated with the rescue of prominent protagonists threatened by death. In Egyptian myth, Horus is credited with saving his father Osiris, while Yahoel is sent to help Abraham immediately after the latter's close brush with fatal disaster when his father Terah's house was destroyed by fire. Figure 4. While none of these conjectures about Egyptian influence on Apocalypse of Abraham are definitive, they do suggest intriguing possibilities for future research. We now provide specific phrase-by-phrase comparisons of themes in the corresponding narrative structure of the two texts, occasionally supplemented by references to relevant material in the Book of Abraham and ancient Near East texts. Prologue Setting Like the Book of Moses, the first chapter of the Heavenly Ascent section of Apocalypse of Abraham mentions a high mountain. Sacrifice In Apocalypse of Abraham, the high mountain is to be a place of sacrifice. The prophet wears his robe on the left shoulder in priestly fashion as he performs the sacrifice, figure 5. Consistent with the setting and situations described in Apocalypse of Abraham and in Genesis 15, a figure from facsimile 2 of the book of Abraham states that knowledge was, quote, revealed from God to Abraham as he offered sacrifice upon an altar which he had built unto the Lord, close quote. Though this detail is not explicitly mentioned in the book of Moses, it is not unreasonable to presume a similar setting. Moses in the Spirit World Aratology. In both the book of Moses and Apocalypse of Abraham, the prophet is given a description of God's majesty. Formally, such a description is termed an aratology. The titles Almighty, Book of Moses, and Mighty, Apocalypse of Abraham, recall the demonstration of God's power over the waters as the first act of creation, and then in the destruction of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. Significantly, Moses will later, quote, be made stronger than many waters, as if thou wert God, close quote. Both Endless, Book of Moses, and Primordial, Apocalypse of Abraham, are related to the characterization of God as being, quote, without beginning of days or end of years, close quote. Endless corresponds to the Hebrew Ein Sof, without end, beyond all limits, a concept that in the medieval Kabbalah is sometimes depicted visually as a set of concentric circles with their, quote, end embedded in their beginning and their beginning in their end, close quote. Such imagery recalls the description in Latter-day Saint scripture of God's course as, quote, one eternal round, close quote. God to show a vision of eternity. In both texts, a vision of eternity is promised. In Alexander Kulik's translation of Apocalypse of Abraham, he elaborates on Apocalypse of Abraham's mention of secrets, describing them as, quote, great things that are kept or hidden. These ancient descriptions resonate with the Book of Mormon prophet Ether's mention of, quote, greater things, the knowledge of which is hid up, close quote. In Jewish tradition, such secrets include both a knowledge of, quote, the system by which the whole cosmos is put together, close quote, what the Lord describes to Moses as the workmanship of my hands, and also the revelation of what God is about to do, i.e., the things that will be shown in vision to Moses and to Abraham, 
Reason for God's Favor In the Old Testament, the promise of seeing the face of God is frequently associated with the wholehearted searching of the petitioner. The prophet is commissioned. Because each of the two prophets have found God's favor, they both receive personal titles and commissions. Stephen O. Smoot has shown that the conferral of the title of God's son on Moses might be seen as ratifying the prophet's membership in the divine council. Though at first glance the words only begotten and full of grace and truth in Moses 1 might seem to be nothing more than obvious borrowings and language from the Gospel of John, biblical and extra-biblical texts convincingly demonstrate that these expressions are at home in a text about Moses. In Arabic, Abraham is often referred to as Al-Khalil, the friend, meaning the friend of God. The teachings and revelation of Joseph Smith sometimes use friend as a technical term, denoting one who is personally acquainted with the Lord and, like the members of the Divine Council, has first-hand knowledge of the Divine Will. Vision of the Spirit World Both Moses I and Apocalypse of Abraham include a vision of the premortal spirit world. Moses is shown the, quote, world upon which he was created, close quote, which arguably refers to the creation of humankind before the creation in the pre-existent spirit world. And, quote, all the children of men which are and which were created, close quote. Likewise, in Apocalypse of Abraham, Abraham is shown, quote, a great crowd of men and women and children, close quote, before they, quote, came into being, close quote. In an exceptional deviation of narrative sequence between the two texts, we note that Abraham's vision of premortal spirits occurs toward the end of his vision, rather than near the beginning, as in Moses 1. Cosmic Circle with Opposing Premortal Forces After passing through the celestial curtain, Abraham will see a picture on a visionary screen that is projected on the backside of the heavenly veil. By means of this image, accompanied by God's explanations, he will obtain, quote, a knowledge of the things as they are, and as they were, and as they are to come, close quote. Rubenkowitz is careful to clarify that the term used for picture likely refers to something more like a model or likeness of heaven and earth than a photographic reproduction. He observes that, quote, the idea that the model of the created world existed before creation is widespread in the apocryphal literature, close quote. Hinting at the geometrical shape of the model Abraham will be shown, Yahowel tells him, quote, I will show thee the fullness of the whole world and its circle, close quote. In biblical cosmology, circles are used to, quote, indicate the horizon where the earth comes together with the sky, close quote. In light of Hugh Nibley's extensive analysis of circular depictions of the cosmos, it becomes possible to conjecture a general possibility for what Abraham's peculiar and otherwise difficult to explain vision of the primordial spirits of humankind in Apocalypse of Abraham was supposed to look like. Namely, quote, a graphic representation of the whole world and its circle, in which the human race, God's people, and the others confront each other beneath or within the circle of the starry heavens, on opposite halves of the picture. Close quote. Quote, in Apocalypse of Abraham, Abraham sees the division of the earth's inhabitants into opposing halves, half on the right side of the portrayal and half on the left side of the portrayal. Close quote. Noting general resemblances to Egyptian hypocephali, Nibley writes, quote, Almost all hypocephali, including facsimile 2 of the Book of Abraham, are marked by strong vertical divisions right down the middle, 
This cosmic bisecting is prominent in Egyptian temples, where everything on the right side of the worshiper in the temple was on the south side, the side of light and life, while everything on the left side was north, darkness and death. Nibley also observed that in the Apocalypse of Abraham account of Abraham's vision, one can see a quote, throne of fire under which are four fiery creatures, each with four faces, those of a lion, man, ox, and eagle. Close quote. Significantly, these figures correspond to quote, the canopic figures, figure six on the book of Abraham facsimile two. Close quote. Moreover, Michael Rhodes notes that the first part of the description of the picture in Apocalypse of Abraham 12.10, quote, what is in the heavens, on the earth, and in the sea, in the abyss, close quote, further quote, is almost an exact translation of the Egyptian words in the left middle portion of facsimile number two of the book of Abraham, figures nine and ten, close quote. Whether or not Apocalypse of Abraham is depicting an actual hypocephalus or a similar representation of the cosmic circle would be consonant with the evidence of other Egyptian influences in the text that we have already described. Some of the spirits are chosen. In the book of Abraham, the Lord points out the many, quote, noble and great ones, close quote, that were chosen before they were born. Likewise, in Apocalypse of Abraham, and within other Jewish and Islamic accounts in similar fashion, a premortal group of spirits shown, quote, on the right side of the portrayal, close quote, is, quote, set apart to be born of Abraham, close quote, and to be called God's people. Although some scholars take this and other passages as evidence of a strong belief in determinism that pervades Apocalypse of Abraham, Amy Paulson Reed has pointed to other passages in Apocalypse of Abraham that demonstrate a belief in free will. She has convincingly concluded that Apocalypse of Abraham, quote, seems to fit quite comfortably in the category called compatibilism, close quote. In the specific version of compatibilism that appears to be espoused in Apocalypse of Abraham, quote, a belief in divine election, i.e., that God has a predetermined plan for the world, including his election of Abraham and the people of Israel, is combined with the belief that individuals have the power to choose their lot, close quote. Fall and loss of strength. Following their initial divine encounter, both prophets experience a fall to the earth that leaves them vulnerable to the will of the adversary. Abraham is reported as saying, quote, I fell down upon the earth, for there was no longer strength in me, close quote. closely resembling the description in Moses 1, where we are told that he fell into the earth and lost his natural strength. While modern readers might easily skim over the description of the fall and the raising of the two prophets, thinking it of little interest, it was clearly a significant event to the ancient illustrator, who found it important enough to include it among the six passages he highlighted with visual depictions. The drawing depicts Abraham being raised up out of sleep, or perhaps death, by the hand of Yahweh, who, using his right hand, lifts him firmly by the wrist. The rays emanating from the hand of God impart the spirit of life, recalling the creation of Adam when God, quote, breathed the breath of life, close quote, into the first man, and he became a living soul. Medieval Christian depictions, such as this one shown in figure 8, that show the resurrected Christ raising up the dead by the same gesture, further guide our intuitions about the importance of the raising of Moses and Abraham, and how it may have been meant to be understood by the illustrator of the Codex of Esther. Moses defeats Satan. 
Satan disrupts the worship of God. Recalling Satan's encounter with Christ in the wilderness, the adversary tempts the prophet, in his physically weakened state, to worship him, Moses 1, or in the case of Apocalypse of Abraham, to, quote, leave Yahuwah and flee, close quote. In the book of Moses, the title conferred by deity on Moses as a son of God is explicitly challenged by Satan, who calls him a son of man. According to David Halperin, Satan's tactic to deceive Abraham is a, quote, last-ditch effort to retain his privileged place in heaven, close quote. If he can persuade Abraham, quote, not to make his ascent, he will perhaps be able to keep his own privileged status, close quote. Satan's identity is questioned. Both Moses and Abraham ask their adversary for credentials, which, not unexpectedly, he fails to provide. In the book of Moses, the prophet questions Satan directly. By way of contrast, in Apocalypse of Abraham, the angel Yahuel mediates Abraham's question. But it is an interesting sort of mediation, as indicated by the following summary of the conversational flow. 1. Satan addresses Abraham. 2. Abraham ignores Satan and converses with Yahuel. 3. Yahuel directly addresses Satan. 4. Abraham addresses Satan, but only when and how Yahuel instructs him to. Note how later, in 14.9, Abraham slips up and addresses Satan directly, for which he is sharply rebuked by Yahuel. Nowhere does Satan address Yahuel. Satan contrasted with the prophet. In both accounts, Satan's attempt to disguise his identity is recognized. Lacking divine glory and heavenly inheritance, the devil is easily and humiliatingly exposed. Documenting related instances of the adversary's deception, the Apostle Paul, drawing on early Jewish tradition, spoke of Satan transforming himself, quote, into an angel of light, close quote. With similar language, Joseph Smith also spoke of the devil having appeared deceptively as an angel of light. Michael Stone sees a passage in the Latin Life of Adam and Eve as implying that, quote, all Satan lacked to look like a heavenly angel was the glory. He lost the glory when he fell, and he could only take it on temporarily in order to deceive Adam and Eve, close quote. Thus, Satan is depicted in illustrations of the temptation of Christ, as elsewhere in early Christian art, as angelic in form but differing in color e.g. appearing with false glory, in a blue tint rather than in a bright whiteness of glory, figure 9. Alternatively, one might interpret Satan's blue color as his appearing deceptively in a form corresponding to the blue robe of the high priest, a robe that represented being clothed in the likeness of the body, the black-blue shadow of the incarnate logos. Moses, having received a taste of the celestial heights, had already learned to distinguish God's glory from Satan's pale imitation. He challenged the adversary, saying, quote, Where is thy glory? For it is darkness unto me, and I can judge between thee and God. Close quote. Satan told to depart and cease his deception. In similar terms, the book of Moses and Apocalypse of Abraham both relate a first command for Satan to depart. Both accounts specifically admonish him not to engage in further deception. In Apocalypse of Abraham, as previously, Yahuwah mediates Abraham's dialogue with Satan. The prophet received the glory that Satan lost. Satan is reminded that the glory he previously possessed now belongs to the prophet. Moses' words constitute a second, quote, humiliating exposure of Satan, close quote, as an enemy rather than a son of God.
reminding him of the divine declaration that Moses, quote, actually is what his adversary falsely claims to be, close quote. In Apocalypse of Abraham, Satan's false pretensions and the prophet's right to glory are both confirmed by the affirmation of Yahuel that Satan's heavenly garment is now reserved for Abraham, and that his erstwhile glory will be exchanged for Adam's bodily corruption. Satan told to depart a second time. In both texts, Satan is again forcefully told to leave with no further discussion. Moses curtly commands, quote, Depart hence, Satan, close quote. While in Apocalypse of Abraham, he is told, quote, vanish from before me, close quote, or in Rubinkowitz's translation, get away from me. The wider context of Moses' command for Satan to depart is noteworthy. In Apocalypse of Abraham 14.5, Yahuwah instructs Abraham to preface his command for Satan to depart by saying, quote, may you be the firebrand of the furnace of the earth, close quote, which sounds like an artful way to say, go to hell. Satan's final attempt to win the prophet's worship. In Apocalypse of Abraham, Abraham momentarily gives in to Satan's ploy to continue the dialogue, answering him deferentially, quote, Here am I, your servant. Close quote. To ward off further danger, the angel gives Abraham a stern warning, quote, Answer him not, lest his, i.e. Satan's, will affect you. Close quote. In the book of Moses, the goal of Satan's demand is expressed more directly, Worship me. Significantly, the cosmic battles depicted in Moses 1 and Apocalypse of Abraham are not head-on clashes between the titanic forces of opposing gods or demigods. Rather, they are the conflicts of mortals who are caught between those forces, being compelled to choose by devilish adversaries, while at the same time being enabled to stand by heavenly powers. Mark Filonenko's analysis of this unusual aspect of Apocalypse of Abraham applies equally well to Moses 1. Quote, the interaction between the good and malevolent powers does not occur directly, but rather through a medium of a human being, Abraham. Abraham thus becomes the place of battle between two spiritual forces. In this struggle, the Prince of Lights and the Angel of Darkness are fighting in the heart of a man. Close quote. Satan's definitive departure following the invocation of the name of the Son of God. In contrast to Satan's warrantless demand, Moses executes his authoritative command, thus forcing his adversary to depart through the power of the priesthood after the order of the Son of God. The dramatic turning point of this episode hinges on Satan's desperate false claim to be the only begotten, countered by Moses' triumphant invocation of, of the name of the true only begotten. No corresponding passage is found in Apocalypse of Abraham. However, a medieval Ethiopian text provides an interesting echo of a similar motif. As in Moses 1, it argues the potency of the divine name in driving Satan away. In an account of the battle between Satan's rebellious armies and the hosts of heaven, the angels twice charged Satan's ranks unsuccessfully. However, prior to their third attempt, they were given a cross of light inscribed, quote, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, close quote. And, quote, when Satnael, Satan, saw that inscription, he was vanquished, close quote. Moses calls upon God, hears a voice. Ascent to heaven. The imagery of heavenly ascent on the wings of birds is a convention that goes back at least 2,000 years. 
In figure 10, we see Abraham and Yahuwah ascending to heaven on the wings of the two birds provided by God, but not divided at the time of the sacrifice. As in earlier illustrations, Yahuwah holds Abraham firmly by the wrist, using the right hand. In the Book of Mormon, the prophet Nephi was similarly, quote, caught away in the spirit of the Lord, yea, into an exceedingly high mountain, which he had never before seen, close quote. Nephi later said that, quote, upon the wings of his spirit hath my body been carried away upon exceedingly high mountains, close quote. Imagery that is arguably similar to the apocalypse of Abraham, description of Abraham being raised up to heaven on the wings of a bird. In the book of Moses, a context of priesthood ordinances seems implied. For example, having banished Satan by calling upon the name of the only begotten, a motif that precedes baptism in some ancient Christian sources, Moses was immediately afterwards, quote, filled with the Holy Ghost, close quote. Further support for this idea is found in the fact that the description of Moses being caught up, as Nephi was caught away, is phrased in what is sometimes termed the divine passive. This syntactic form implies that his ascent was accomplished by God's power and not his own. The scriptural use of the divine passive may also indicate a context of priesthood ordinances. For example, we are told elsewhere that Adam was, quote, caught away by the Spirit of the Lord, close quote, into the water and baptized. Note that the Apostle Paul, in a description similar to that of the experiences of Moses and Abraham, was caught up to the third heaven. Going further, Hugh Nibley explained, quote, In the old world accounts, the hero is taken up to heaven by a dove. In the Joseph Smith revelations, it is by the Holy Ghost. The two are strikingly brought together in Abraham's cosmic chart, Book of Abraham facsimile 2, which has as its central theme the theophany, a design which does not depict but represents God sitting upon his throne, revealing through the heavens the grand key words of the priesthood, as also the sign of the Holy Ghost unto Abraham in the form of a dove. Explanation of facsimile 2, figure 7. So there you have the whole situation. The dove that takes one to heaven is the Holy Ghost, who also instructs and teaches through the heavens, revealing the grand key words as also the sign, by which alone supernal knowledge can be conveyed. It is exactly the same scenario in the Abraham Apocrypha as in the Joseph Smith Book of Abraham. Close quote. Seeing God Moses 125 tells us that Moses, quote, beheld God's glory, close quote. However, in an important divergence from the book of Moses, Apocalypse of Abraham has Yahuwah declare to Abraham, quote, the eternal one you will not see, close quote. Thus, the redactor of Apocalypse of Abraham explicitly rejects any visualization of God and, quote, insists on expressing the divine presence in the form of the deity's voice alone. Importantly, however, the divine whisper or echo, Hebrew bat kol, literally daughter of the voice, through which in Hebrew tradition divine revelation continued orally even after the open visions of the prophets had ceased, was depicted for centuries in the art of Jewish synagogues and Christian churches as a divine hand. In portrayals of ritual or heavenly ascent, this hand was often shown as emerging from behind a cloud or veil, representing the obscuring boundary that separated earth from heaven. 
A relevant example is shown in figure 11, an illustration from a decoration on the Torah shrine of the synagogue at Dura Europos, built two centuries after the probable composition of Apocalypse of Abraham. It is the, quote, earliest known depiction of the hand of God in either Jewish or Christian art, close quote. Isaac, depicted behind the scene of his near sacrifice and clad in white clothing marked with reddish clavy, is shown entering behind the veil of a tent sanctuary at the top of Mount Moriah. This reading is supported by Jewish and early Christian texts suggesting that in the Akedah, Isaac literally died, ascended to heaven, and was resurrected. Note that the scene could be equally well interpreted as a ritual simulating death, resurrection, and ascent to heaven, such as what seems to have been experienced by worshippers at Duryropus. The disembodied hand, a visualization of God's body in pars pro toto, i.e. the part shown representing all the rest, and of his heavenly utterance from behind the veil, i.e. the bat kol, is shown above the scene of the arrested sacrifice and to the immediate left of the tent sanctuary. Moses 1, 25-31 describes the revelation of God as a progressive phenomenon, beginning with, quote, a voice and ending with a face-to-face encounter. Notably, the same sequence of divine disclosure is present in the story of the brother of Jared's intimate encounter with the Lord, quote, at the veil. In that account, the prayer of the brother of Jared is answered first with a divine voice, then with seeing the finger of the hand of the Lord, and finally with a view of the body of his spirit. Passing through the veil, the voice of God. In Apocalypse of Abraham 17.3, the voice that accompanies Abraham's passage through the veil is that of the angel Yahuel. Yahuel mediates God's self-revelation to Abraham as he previously mediated Abraham's dialogue with Satan. Yahuel, standing with the prophet in front of the veil, gives encouragement to a fearful Abraham, provides instructions to him about what to say at the veil, and promises to remain with him, strengthening him as he comes into the presence of the Lord. In contrast to Apocalypse of Abraham's account of mediated revelation, Moses experiences the voice of God directly. At first, Moses hears God's voice but does not yet see him face to face. His experience parallels that of Adam and Eve when they also, quote, called upon the name of the Lord, close quote, in sacred prayer. We read that, quote, they heard the voice of the Lord from the way toward the Garden of Eden, speaking unto them, and they saw him not, for they were shut out from his presence, close quote. The, quote, way toward the Garden of Eden, close quote, is, of course, the path that terminates in the way of the Tree of Life. In the corresponding symbolism of the Garden of Eden and the Temple, the Tree of Knowledge hides the Tree of Life, just as the veil hides the presence of God in his heavenly sanctuary. To proceed further, the veil must be opened to the petitioner. In Moses 1 and Apocalypse of Abraham, multiple openings of multiple veils are signified explicitly, if somewhat cryptically. We observe that in Moses 1.25, a significant inclusio opens with a description of how after, quote, calling upon God, close quote, the Lord's glory, quote, was upon Moses, and he heard a voice. In verses 30 through 31, the inclusio closes in similar fashion, but states significantly that Moses sees God rather than just hearing him. Quote, Moses called upon God, the glory of the Lord was upon Moses, so that Moses stood in the presence of God and talked with him face to face. Close quote. 
sandwiched between the opening and closing of the inclusio is a phrase that is intriguing because at first blush it seems both gratuitous and inexplicable, quote, as the voice was still speaking, close quote. To our surprise, we discovered that Apocalypse of Abraham repeats variants of a similar phrase, e.g., and while he was still speaking. Further examination of these instances revealed a commonality in each of the junctures where it is used. In short, in each of the four instances where this phrase appears in Apocalypse of Abraham, as in its single occurrence in Moses 1.27, the appearance of the phrase seems to be associated with an opening of a heavenly veil. In Moses 1, the phrase appears at the expected transition point in Moses' ascent. We have already argued that when he, quote, heard a voice, in verse 25, he was still positioned outside the veil. Immediately following the phrase, as the voice was still speaking, he seems to have traversed the veil, allowing him to see every particle of the earth and its inhabitants, projected on the inside of the veil. In this fashion, the veil serves in Apocalypse of Abraham as it typically does in similar accounts of heavenly ascent, namely as, quote, a kind of visionary screen, close quote. After the vision closes, Moses stands, quote, in the presence of God, close quote, and talks with him face to face. We see a similar phenomenon repeated in Apocalypse of Abraham. For example, the account explicitly describes how Abraham, after his descent and while the angel was still speaking, looked down and saw a series of heavenly veils open beneath his feet, enabling his subsequent views of heavenly things. Moreover, as Abraham traverses the heavenly veil in a downward direction as part of his return to earth, the expression, and while he was still speaking, recurs. Consistent with the change of glory that typically accompanies traversals of heavenly veils in such accounts, Abraham commented immediately afterwards, quote, I found myself on the earth, and I said, I am no longer in the glory which I was above, close quote. Passing through the veil, the voice of the petitioner. In ancient literature, a passage through the veil is frequently accompanied not only with the sorts of divine utterance just described, but also with human speech. For example, instances of formal prayer and exchanges of words of the veil are variously described in Egyptian ritual texts, Jewish pseudepigrapha, and the Book of Mormon. Similarly, in Apocalypse of Abraham, a recitation of a fixed set of words, often described elsewhere as a hymn, precedes a vision of the throne of glory. In Apocalypse of Abraham, Abraham is enjoined by the angel Yahuel to recite a hymn in preparation for his ascent to receive a vision of the work of God. Unlike other pseudepigraphal accounts of heavenly ascent, Apocalypse of Abraham, quote, treats the hymn sung by the visionary as part of the means of achieving ascent. Close quote. Near the end of Abraham's recitation, he implores God to accept the words of his prayer and the sacrifice that he has offered, to teach him and to, quote, make known to your servant as you have promised me, close quote. Then, quote, while he was still reciting the hymn, close quote, the veil opens and the throne of glory appears to his view. Significantly, Abraham's, quote, form of ascension, where the literary protagonist reaches the highest sphere of heaven at once, rather than in stages, is only described in Apocalypse of Abraham and cannot be found in any other apocalyptic text, close quote. Thus, Apocalypse of Abraham's account of Abraham's direct entry to the highest heaven without first traversing a set of lower heavens is another unique resemblance to Moses 1. 
many waters. After Abraham's traversal upward through the veil, quote, while the angel was still speaking, close quote, he sees a fire and hears a sound, i.e. a voice, like the sound of many waters. Though a, quote, comparison with the tumult of an army camp is not drawn explicitly here, like it is in Ezekiel 124, one may recognize in the sound an allusion to the triumphant procession of a conqueror returning from war, close quote. Quote, the heavenly light is of dazzling brilliance, the divine voice is like thunder, close quote. The resulting explosion of sensorial experience announces to all the arrival of the Lord of hosts in the fullness of his glory. As might be expected in the light of the previous sequence of parallels in Moses 1 and Apocalypse of Abraham, both texts share the imagery of many waters. However, by way of contrast to Apocalypse of Abraham, the panoply of symbols employed to describe divine presence in Moses 1 is astonishingly applied to Moses himself. As in a hall of mirrors of cosmic scope, the verbal interplay of the scriptural passage is, quote, so constructed that while one is always looking straight ahead at a perfectly solid surface, one is made to contemplate not the bright surface itself, but the bewildering maze of past circumstances and future consequences which it contains, close quote. Elsewhere, Jeffrey M. Bradshaw and Matthew L. Bowen describe how the elegantly reflective intralingual etymological nuances relating to a series of three temple-related names and titles ascribed to Moses by Clement of Alexandria, Joachim, Moses, Melchi, are made into various enriched likenesses of himself, interpreted and amplified in Moses 1 to reveal the latent character and identity of the prophet as a god in embryo. The authors demonstrate how names such as these, purportedly given to Moses, are veritable key words, allowing individuals like them to discover their destiny and enabling them to accomplish their heavenly ascent. Jeff Lindsay illustrates the resonance of the imagery of Moses being made, quote, stronger than many waters, close quote, with the Book of Mormon. He points out an allusion to the strength of Moses in 1 Nephi 4.2 that corresponds to Moses 1.20-21 and 25, while having no strong parallel in the Bible. Additionally, Mark J. Johnson insightfully observes that the fact that Moses was, quote, made stronger than many waters, close quote, already puts Moses in the similitude of God, God's throne being on many waters, close quote. Moreover, as God explains the significance of Moses' name, he links it with one of his own titles, Almighty. Fittingly, the divine name Almighty, in Moses 1, 4, and 25, recalls the demonstration of God's power over the waters of chaos as the first act of creation. Consistent with this imagery, the promise to Moses of power over the waters resembles that given to David in Psalm 89, 25. Like Moses, David is there depicted as a god, a lesser Yahweh, on earth. Moreover, E.R. Goodenough summarizes Philo's view on the deification of Moses in ancient Jewish tradition as follows, quote, Philo is so carried away by the exalted Moses that he frequently speaks of him as having been deified or being God. For when he had left all mortal categories behind, he was changed into the divine so that he might be akin to God and truly divine. Quote. The prophet beholds the earth. The change in perspective as Moses passes upward through the heavenly veil is related in subtle beauty in the book of Moses. 
Previously, as Moses stood on the earth, he, quote, lifted up his eyes unto heaven, close quote. Now, after ascending to heaven, he, quote, cast his eyes, close quote, down to see the earth and all of its inhabitants. Similarly, Abraham is told, quote, look now beneath your feet at the expanse, i.e., the veil, and contemplate the creation and those who inhabit it, close quote. Significantly, Kulik notes that, quote, Abraham's exploration of the heavenly world in a downward direction as the heavens open below, close quote, is unique in the relevant uh, heavenly ascent literature. He writes, quote, other visionaries either moved from lower to upper firmaments or wandered in a horizontal direction, close quote. Remarkably, this feature unique to Apocalypse of Abraham in the pseudepigraphal literature also appears in Moses 1. The translation of Rubinkowitz is stronger than that of Kulik, indicating that Abraham is not merely required to contemplate the creation and the inhabitants of the world, but rather to pay attention and understand it. How can Abraham come to understand the universe? In terms that echo the bipartite structure of the hypocephalus in facsimile 2 of the Book of Abraham, Rubinkowitz explains, quote, If we pay attention to our account, we will see an astonishing thing. Abraham sees the earth peopled by the wicked, verse 3, but he also sees Eden inhabited by the righteous, verse 6. God shows him the sea ruled by Leviathan, verse 4, but Abraham also contemplates the upper waters that are above the firmament, verse 5. At the conclusion, he sees people at the left and right of the picture. What should Abraham understand by this vision? The answer is simple. The division between the righteous and the wicked is based on the structure of the world, where both the forces of evil, the earth and the wicked, the sea and Leviathan, and the forces of good, the upper waters, Eden, each have their place. The entire universe has thus been projected by God, and it is pleasing to him. 22.2. In other words, as Lehi declared, quote, it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things, close quote, or else, quote, there would have been no purpose in creation. Close quote. The inhabitants of the earth. In their visions, both Moses and Abraham seem to have not only seen the inhabitants of the earth, but also witnessed the earth's entire history from beginning to end, like Adam, Enoch, the brother of Jared, John the Beloved, and others. Moroni taught that those with perfect faith cannot be, quote, kept from within the veil, close quote, i.e., cannot be kept outside the veil. The veil in question is the heavenly veil, behind which God dwells in glory, whose earthly counterpart is the temple veil that divides the holy place from the holy of holies. Consistent with Jewish, Islamic, and other ancient accounts, Abraham and Moses do not receive their cosmic visions until after they have passed through the heavenly veil. This is because the visions in such accounts, derived from a blueprint of eternity that has been worked out before the creation, are usually described as being depicted inside the heavenly veil. The prophet questions God. Now, standing in the presence of God, Moses asks about the creation. Quote, Tell me, I pray thee, why these things are so. Close quote. However, in an important divergence from Moses 1, in Apocalypse of Abraham, Abraham asks, two questions of a somewhat different nature. The first, about the origin of evil in the world. Quote, Why have you set yourself with Satan? Close quote. And later, the other about the origin of evil in humankind. Quote, Eternal Mighty One, why did you ordain it to be so? Close quote. 
Moses will receive a partial answer to his question about by what God made these things through a vision of the creation. He will also be told something about why these things are so. As with Moses, the answer to Abraham's first question will be found in his vision of the creation and the fall. However, the answer to his second question will come as he sees the unfolding of the history of Israel. Scholars, especially those who date this section of Apocalypse of Abraham to the years following the destruction of the temple, see the subsequent material as the sort of thing that a first-century redactor might have inserted into a potentially pre-existing heavenly ascent text as a means of providing a plausible context for the theological questions he aimed to answer for his contemporaries. By way of contrast to Apocalypse of Abraham, the questions about creation posed by Moses are more universal and timeless. God's purpose and will are his own. As the book of Moses refers to, quote, mine own purpose and the, quote, wisdom that remaineth in me, so Apocalypse of Abraham, in the answer to Abraham's second question after his vision of the fall, God declares, quote, the will desired by me, close quote, is, quote, inevitable, i.e., sure to come, just, quote, as the will of your father is in him, close quote. Kulik sees a, quote, very similar context, close quote, in Ephesians 1.11, which combines the concepts of purpose and will, quote, predestined according to the purpose of him who does all things according to the will desired by him, close quote. Seeing the Lord face to face of significance for the present study is that in explicit contradiction to the previously cited text of Apocalypse of Abraham, where Yahweh declared to Abraham that, quote, the eternal one himself you will not see, close quote, the 14th century Christian illustrator of the Codex Sylvester seems to have had no qualms about representing God visually. In figure 13, Abraham and Yahweh are, quote, traveling about the air, close quote, with, quote, no ground beneath which Abraham could fall prostrate, close quote. The figure pictured on the throne seems to be the Christ. His identity is indicated by the cruciform markings on his nimbus. Behind the enthroned Christ is a second figure, perhaps alluding to the statement on the Apocalypse of Abraham that, quote, Michael is with me, i.e., the Lord, in order to bless you forever, close quote. Beneath the throne are fiery seraphim and many-eyed wheels, praising God. The throne is surrounded by a series of heavenly veils, separating the Lord from the material world, the latter being signified by the outermost dark blue veil. The representation of the veils as multicolored may stem from an interpretation of Ezekiel 1.28, where the glory of the Lord is likened to a rainbow. In the depiction shown here, the illustrator has deliberately chosen to use the colors of red, blue, and green. Vision of the Creation, the Garden of Eden, and the Fall At this point, just as Moses is shown the events of the creation and the fall, Apocalypse of Abraham describes how the great patriarch looked down to see the affairs of what is called, in modern revelation, the kingdoms of a lower order. The Lord's voice commanded Abraham to look, and a series of heavenly veils were opened beneath his feet. As in Moses chapter 2 through 3, Abraham is shown the heavenly plan for creation. Quote, the creation that was depicted of old on this expanse, close quote, 21.1. Its realization on the earth, 21.3-5, the Garden of Eden and the fall of Adam and Eve, 21.6, and the spirits of all men, with certain ones, quote, prepared to be born of Abraham and to be called God's people, 21.7-22.5. through 22, 5. When Abraham is told again to, quote, look at the picture, close quote, 
he sees Satan inciting the fall of Adam and Eve. 23, 1-14, just as Moses saw these events following his own heavenly ascent, Moses 4. Section 4. Why is the witness of ancient manuscripts for the book of Moses significant? What can and cannot be concluded from this study? Those who accept Joseph Smith's calling as a seer capable of receiving revelations about the past will find affirmation in the finding that the strongest resemblances between Moses I and the heavenly ascent literature are contained in ancient manuscripts the prophet could not have known. Apocalypse of Abraham, as well as other relevant documents found outside the Bible, such as the life of Adam and Eve, the Greek version known as the Apocalypse of Moses, and 4th Ezra, were not published in English until well after the appearance of the Book of Moses. Though arguments for ancient affinities within the Book of Moses are often dismissed out of hand by non-Latter-day Saints, some broad-minded specialists, not of the faith, have been willing to take them seriously. For example, the eminent Yale professor and Jewish literary scholar Harold Bloom found the Book of Moses and the Book of Abraham two of the, quote, more surprising and neglected works of Scripture of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He wrote that he was intrigued by the fact that many of the themes of these books are, quote, strikingly akin to ancient suggestions, close quote, while expressing, quote, no judgment one way or the other upon the authenticity, close quote, of this modern scripture, he said that he found, quote, enormous validity, close quote, in the way these writings, quote, recapture crucial elements in the archaic Jewish religion that had ceased to be available either to normative Judaism or to Christianity, and that survived only in esoteric traditions unlikely to have touched Joseph Smith directly, close quote. Of course, we cannot go beyond arguments for the plausibility of Moses I as an ancient text to draw conclusions about whether Moses actually ascended to heaven and experienced a vision of creation. The reality of transcendent experiences finds its support in the realm of faith rather than scholarship. As Hugh Nibley wrote with respect to the Book of Mormon, the only thing that might be argued with some confidence when evaluating the authenticity of ancient documents is that a given event, quote, really could have happened that it did happen. To prove that is neither necessary nor possible. Unique events in history can never be reconstructed with certainty, but characteristic related events, manners, customs, rituals, etc., things that happen not just once, but again and again in familiar patterns, may be the object of almost absolute certainty. Hence they, and not particular events, are the hardest things to fake. In testing forgeries and identifying documents, it is the general pattern that is all important. Quote. Could it be that Moses I was revealed rather than simply imagined? With a generous openness to Joseph Smith's claim of the exercise of Syriac gifts, Samuel Zinner, a non-lettery saint who is a lifelong scholar of ancient scripture and pseudepigrapha, suggests that, quote, it might prove fruitful to apply to Joseph Smith's modern-era Enoch writings Michael Stone's model, whereby he posits that at least some ancient post-canonical literature may have been created under the impact of visionary experiences rather than having been authored exclusively by imitating previous literary works. Quote. It is our experience that those who study the Book of Moses in relation to other ancient religious documents may come through them to feel a spiritual kinship to those who have experienced, transcribed, or redacted them. More importantly, they may hope eventually, like Moses and Abraham, to catch a glimpse of the reality behind the dark curtain, 
and a release from the limitations of human efforts to combine experience of the divine within, quote, the little narrow prison, close quote, of mere words alone. Quote, reading the experience of others or the revelation given to them, close quote, said the prophet, quote, can never give us a comprehensive view of our condition and true relation to God. Knowledge of these things can only be obtained by experience through the ordinances of God set forth for that purpose. Could you gaze into heaven five minutes, you would know more than you would by reading all that was ever written on the subject. Acknowledgements. While acknowledging the author's responsibility for the final form of this article, we are grateful to Robert Boylan, Matthew L. Bowen, Ryan Dolly, Jeff Lindsay, Louis Midgley, George Mitten, Kara Muelstein, Daniel C. Peterson, Noel Reynolds, Michael Rhodes, David R. Seeley, Stephen O. Smoot, John Thompson, and Samuel Zinner for their comments and suggestions on earlier drafts. We are indebted to Professor David K. Hart of BYU for providing an English translation of the captions to the Codex Sylvester illustrations. We also express our appreciation to anonymous reviewers whose suggestions have greatly improved this article. Jeffrey M. Bradshaw, Ph.D., Cognitive Science, University of Washington, is a senior research scientist at the Florida Institute of Human and Machine Cognition in Pensacola, Florida. His professional writings have explored a wide range of topics in human and machine intelligence. Jeff has been the recipient of several awards and patents and has been an advisor for initiatives in science, defense, space, industry, and academia worldwide. Jeff has written detailed commentaries on the Book of Moses and Genesis 1-11, through and on temple themes in the scriptures. For church-related publications, see www.templethemes.net. Jeff was a missionary in France and Belgium from 1975 to 1977, and his family has returned twice to live in France. He has served twice as a bishop and twice as a counselor in the stake presidency of the Pensacola, Florida stake. Jeff is currently a temple worker at the Meridian, Idaho Temple and is a service missionary for the Church History Department, working on the history of the church in Africa. Jeff and his wife Kathleen are the parents of four children and 14 grandchildren. From July 2016 to September 2019, Jeff and Kathleen served missions in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Kinshasa Mission Office, and the DR Congo Kinshasa Temple. They currently live in Nampa, Idaho. David J. Larson received his Ph.D. from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland with the dissertation, The Royal Psalms in the Dead Sea Scrolls. He also holds an M.A. degree in Biblical Theology from Marquette University and a B.A. in Near Eastern Studies from Brigham Young University. His research interests include Jewish and Christian apocalyptic and mysticism, pseudepigrapha and apocryphal literature, royal messianic themes in the Bible and in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and Ascent to Heaven traditions. He is the author of the blog HeavenlyAscents.com, where he explores topics in early Jewish and Christian mysticism, LDS theology, and other topics in religious studies. He currently lives in Charlestown, West Virginia, with his wife Marluce and their five children. Stephen T. Whitlock was the chief strategist for Boeing IT Information Security in Seattle, Washington, until his recent retirement. With more than 25 years of research in information security and cryptography, Whitlock has provided strategic input to numerous global agencies. 
He has served on writing committees for the Intelligence and National Security Association, Internet Security Alliance, and Enduring Security Framework Activity. He has served as industry lead for the Defense Information Basis Technology and Architecture Working Group. He also served on the Jericho Forum Board of Management and co-chaired the Open Group Security Forum. Steve has served in a variety of church callings, including teaching early morning seminary for 12 years. He has an interest in the scriptures and the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Steve has a master's degree in software engineering from Seattle University. He and his wife, Diane, currently live in Linden, Utah. This has been a recording of Moses I and the Apocalypse of Abraham, Twin Sons of Different Mothers, by Jeffrey M. Bradshaw, David J. Larson, and Stephen T. Whitlock. Published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume 38, 2020. Read by Victor Worth. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited, and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles on Latter-day Saint scripture can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.